Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the House of Pod. My name is Kave Hoda. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'll be your host on this fun little medical podcast. Um, today, we are going to be covering a uh, a pretty important topic. And I guess I will give whatever warnings I need to give up front. We're going to talk about sexual assault. Joining me to do that, <laughs> two people that... Um, one person in particular I've known a very long time, and one person I've uh, been grateful to get to know recently. Let's start with my longtime friend, Sanam Skelly, audio producer extraordinaire, whose upcoming podcast work is going to be heard on this season of Sports Explains the World, which can be found pretty much anywhere. Sanam, Sanam Skelly, eh, thank you for coming hey, on the show. What up? Hey. I'm stoked to be here. Um. This is keeping in a uh, two-episode long streak of having uh, at least one and a half Persian people on yes. the show. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Strong work, buddy. Um, <laughs> how how, how t- you want to tell the people uh, how we know each other, who you are, uh, what you what you are, what you are, who you are? Yeah. What it uh, is? So we you went to medical school with my cousin Shahyar, um, who I think oh, has been on the show before. The listeners know him by his American name. Oh, right, by his, his stage out, name, Bobby Davari. Bobby Davari. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Also, your other cousin, his brother Shaheen, right. who kept it real, has been. On no, the show. he didn't keep it real. He goes Shaheen. by Shah. Uh yeah yeah he yeah. I've heard him do that that is true that's he uh, does it he's like he's changing it now because now you know 
we expect people to make an effort with our names, which is, you know, which is great. I love that shift in, uh, you know, societal expectations, but Shahyar is hard. I mean, I'll, I'll give him that. Um, I don't even think you call him Shahyar and you're Iranian. I don't, I don't. You call him Bobby. Because when I call him that, he just kind of has a confused look on his face. He's like, who? Yeah. Me? Yeah. You guy. Um, and and you you do you do podcasting too? Tell me. Yeah. What, what is this? Um, do, everyone's just doing podcasting now. Everyone's just doing podcasts now. That was a, a you know you were my inspiration. You pretty much did it before. It was like you and Ira Glass. I think were yeah. the first two that did we have podcasts. A lot in common. Yeah. We have a lot yeah. In common. <laughs> Um, but you've been at this for a minute now. Um, I, this was a COVID shift for me. So I was a hotel concierge for 10 years. And then I really wanted to, I went to school for theater. Um, and I just wanted to do something cool and creative again. And it's been a long time and COVID let me, uh, you know, gave me the time to be broke and start from the bottom. And now I'm here. You're very good at it. I'll tell you from what I've heard. What, what Ah, is this? What is this new piece coming out going to be on? Um, so the title of the episode is called The Weight, Rage Against the Regime. Uh, and so the the series is, a, is essentially um, sports adjacent stories. They're all human stories that happen to have a sports theme attached to them. They're all different. Uh, you know, I produced a number of other episodes as well. This upcoming episode is one I happen to also report and host. Um, it's about uh, what female athletes are up against when they're trying to be, uh, when they're trying to pursue their sports under the uh, purview of the Islamic Republic um, and the Federation under them. So wow, fantastic work. Mashallah. Yeah. Mashallah. Mashallah. Merci. <laughs> you get to hear me speak Farsi. Your Farsi um, and my Farsi are probably equally bad, I think. Is that fair to say? My Farsi is way better than your Farsi. That's bullshit. 100%. My Farsi is better. Like um, without a shadow of a doubt. All right. We could, you might we'll, understand, like, my spoken Farsi is fine it ain't great but it's definitely better than yours well i'm not gonna fight that actually it's probably true <laughs> my farsi is fucking garbage i barely do english i barely <laughs> got english now <laughs> yeah but you know who does speak english very well our other guest who's going to help us tackle this very important topic dr Alyssa Burghardt, pediatric anesthesiologist at stanford children's hospital maybe you've heard of it sonam She's the medical director of uh, ethics at the Children's Hospital there, and she is the associate editor at the American Journal of Bioethics. Dr. Burgart, uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me and for appreciating that I speak English full time. <laughs> well done. Well done, buddy. You're nailing it, by the way. Wait, Early we're not doing accent. this whole thing in Farsi. I uh, <laughs> I thought that's I thought that was the game plan. <laughs> that uh, would last about 20 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still getting emails. The last episode, I mispronounced Edinburgh because it's spelled Edinburgh and I pronounced it Edinburgh. And I'm still getting emails about how it is Mm -hmm. not pronounced. So anyways, we're not going to do that. Edinburgh, yeah. We're going to talk about something slightly (laughs) less difficult. Uh, We're going to talk about sexual assault. And Mm. we're going to talk about a particular form of it, which um, if I'm being completely honest, I did not realize 
was as um, big <laughs> a topic as it is, which is sexual assault of patients perpetrated by a doctor. Mm. Now, um, I first, you know, we've heard of cases every now and then. A lot of them have gotten public press. We'll talk about some of those, I think, as this episode goes along. But um, when I solicited for questions or topics on Twitter, as I oftentimes do before an episode, uh, I got a huge influx of uh, cases that people sent me uh, and clippings from like news reports. And, you know, uh, can I call you Alyssa? Alyssa? Please, please call me Alyssa. Uh, I, I was going to call you Alyssa anyways. I just say that so people when they oh, listen well, to the show, don't get mad. You know what I mean? Listen, I appreciate you in you know engaging in the pretense yeah. of it being a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate you appreciating <laughs> that I had to do that or else there would be someone who'd be like, that's not cool that you didn't like check with her first. And I'm like, well, you know, we talk before like the episode <laughs> starts, right? It's not like it, they come in, in this like the first time I talk. Anyways, ah, sorry, I'm fine. I'm fine, guys. I'm fine. Everything's fine. There's no, everything's cool. I'm cool. Um, so, uh, Alyssa, uh, I, you, you've been writing about this a lot. You, you've you've written uh, multiple pieces on this, and you've been talking about a couple of cases in particular recently, and that's kind of what brought this to my attention. Um, so, let's just can we start with some basic stuff here? Do we have any sense of uh, numbers? And I looked into it a little bit, but do do you have any sense? of numbers of how often this happens, how many cases a year, anything like that, that we can sort of put this in perspective? Yeah, I, I'm i sure that people would love to have, you know, an accurate accounting of how often this terrible thing is happening. And unfortunately, just like other forms of sexual assault and other forms of assault more generally, you know, not everybody feels safe to report what happened to them. And because of the power dynamics that are involved uh, specifically with physicians, that can be a further issue that really prevents patients from recognizing that even if they felt uncomfortable, that actually something much worse took place. And so we don't have great data. We expect, at least from some of the studies that have been done looking through, for example, um, sanctions that have happened through medical boards over a period of time, it seems to be rare. The problem is that uh, as with um, other perpetrators of rape, you oftentimes have repeat offenders. So it may not be that many physicians overall, but the physicians who are engaging this, especially if they're if it's not caught and reined in very early, can have hundreds to thousands of victims over the course of a career. Wow. You've covered a couple of these cases um, and you've talked about some of them looking through what I could see. Tell me if you think this is about accurate. There was a 2017 exploratory analysis. It looked at about a hundred cases of physician sexual abuse. And it found that the most common forms were inappropriate touching about 33% sodomy, 31%, which is, I mean, I have questions about that. Um, rape, sixteen percent. Also, strange to me that those are—I don't know how those Two are separated. Things. Yeah, um, child molestation, fourteen percent, and what is at least purportedly consensual sex, and seven percent. Um, does that—is that the cases that you see? Is, is that sort of jive with what you're seeing, or do you feel like maybe there's uh, there's a broader definition here that we're missing? I mean, all of those things are assault. And so all of those things are things that have happened to patients and they happen to 
they happen to lots of patients. And the problems, of course, is also that there are many patients, again, like I said, that never report. And, you know, additionally, if someone doesn't know that they can report, if they don't know that anything has happened, that's difficult to take that forward. And then to compound this problem, very few of these complaints, if somebody complains, complains, for example, to a hospital system, that doesn't, people oftentimes assume, oh, this organization is going to protect me and protect future patients. And of course, this organization, this university, this giant health system would want to protect patients from this horrible, egregious conduct. But in reality, it doesn't mean that these things are going to go to a medical board. It doesn't mean that they're going to be forward to law enforcement. And just as we see things like pass the trash with lots of misbehavior that happens in hospitals, sexual assault is exactly one of those issues where very similarly to the behavior we saw um, with the Catholic Church passing along abusive, sexually abusive priests from parish to parish, you can sometimes follow these clinicians from state to state or from hospital to hospital because they're quietly allowed to leave without blemishes on their records until they assault another patient. Why is that? Like, why? I'm sorry. Like, I. It's a I, really good question. <laughs> so, for the listeners, for like the last minute or two, Sonam's just been like rubbing her eyes in, like, like she wants to to take out her eyes. I don't yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. hard to listen to. I mean, the general to like to to potentially have been under anesthesia and been assaulted and not even know what happened to you just is so. That's terrifying. You know how many times I've been under and under like the care of a male doctor and under, you know, I mean, that is. Uh, well, I have a question about that, too, actually. I mean, how how is that happening? Because usually in my from my field, at least I'm never alone with a sedated mm-hmm. patient. I'm there's always at least one to two uh, nurses in the room and uh, almost always a female nurse uh, in those situations. So how is that happening, Alyssa? How how are there cases of sedated patients getting? Um, what, yeah, tell us. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, you know, it's <clears throat> there's this falls into a number of categories. So one is an issue that came up when you had asked on Twitter what what folks were interested in. And so, for example, medical students who are taught how to do gynecologic exams on anesthetized patients who have not consented to have those exams. And some of these patients are not even having gynecologic procedures. They're having other procedures where there's absolutely no reason why a pelvic exam would be part of their medical care at all. And so there's a huge movement in the country to stop the unconsented examinations of patients uh, without their consent, which is very important. Folks should definitely check out, there's a fabulous documentary called At Your Cervix um, that really talks Mm. about that particular issue. But to the point of assaulting people in a, a state, in a position where they're anesthetized, you know, first of all, not every surgical location is staffed the same. Not every group is going to have a culture in which folks feel that they can speak up about something suspicious they may see. Um, In the case of gastroenterologists, for example, where you already have, for you know, a scope that's already placed into a sensitive area of the body, there's easier access to be able to touch a patient in another part of their body. And people who are creative about covering up their behavior may be able to participate in that. Um, but the other places where a lot of 
the assaults are taking place is during what is supposed to be regular medical care in clinics. You know, if you are, there's a reason, for example, when we look at the case of Robert Haddon out of Columbia, we only know about, you know, the 500 or so patients who have either settled or have brought a new suit, but there may very well be thousands of other patients because he was a gynecologist. He did a lot of sensitive medical exams. And it turns out he was very creative at making sure, oh, the the, the chaperone just left. Oh, I forgot to do this one part of the exam. Just hop back up on the table. No problem. And because he was able to abuse that position of authority and to abuse that trust that he had built with his patients, because he was very, it sounds like a um, char- you know charismatic person at building trust, was really able to use that clinic experience as a way to assault patients. So this is uh, Robert Haddon, Dr. Robert Haddon, who I, I guess I, I've been told I should say legally is uh, alleged to have these things, right? I don't think he's gone to trial yet, has he? Oh, he's in prison. He, oh, he's already in prison. Okay. So I can say that he did. So not alleged. He has been convicted and he has been sentenced. Okay, fantastic. So uh, speaking of Dr. Robert Haddon, he was an obstetrician, gynecologist, worked over at Columbia University, New York Presbyterian Hospital. And it sounds like as early as 1994, he was sexually assaulting patients. Um, you have been um, trying to work with Columbia University or to put a little pressure on Columbia University. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing there and, and why? Yeah, my my colleague Argavon Salas and I have, have been talking about this issue. Her and I talk a lot about gendered issues in medicine. She's a, a gender scholar. I do a, a lot of gender-based work as well. And one of Robert Haddon's patients that actually sounded the alarm on him was Evelyn Yang, who was the spouse of some of um, someone who had run for president. And so that really got a lot more national attention about her experience, the assault that she experienced. So this has been going, it was going on for a very long time. Columbia, there's a ton of evidence that they continuously covered up this behavior and made it possible for Haddon to continue to work, despite uh, even having been arrested, he was allowed to go back to work for a period of time in which he assaulted more patients. The the reason that Argavon and I are trying to get Columbia to notify the rest of, or at least however many of Robert Haddon's patients can be notified is because the Adult Survivors Act, which is a unique law that's a one-year look-back window in New York where survivors can say, I was assaulted sometime in the past. They can bring civil suit even though that um, period of time where they would have been able to bring that suit has passed. This is a law that E. Jean Carroll used to sue Trump, just as another reminder of another pop, um, big case. So this, sorry, just for clarity, the law applies when a new case comes up. So it's not like they didn't pass this law specifically for the Robert Haddon case. It's it's one that exists. It's, it's for any case in the basically from last year when it became law through the end of November of this year. It's a one year race blanket law yep, that you any... can you can mm-hmm. so any sort of uh, sexual abuse that took place any time in the past that those survivors can bring civil suit. And the window on that, of course, is closing very, Hmm. very rapidly. And so by Columbia, you know, Columbia has already settled out of court for several cases related to Haddon in particular. 
There's another suit that was just brought from, I believe, 300 additional survivors. And the reality is that Robert Haddon was in practice for a very long time, doing many sensitive medical exams every single day. And the reality is that there could be tens of thousands of patients who were assaulted, or at least who he cared for, who may have been assaulted, who should have the opportunity to be part of an of a suit. So this is back to my original question, like, why is there such an effort to protect shitty doctors? Like, I mean, we say like, you know, Kaveh said, oh, you know, these uh, assaults started in 1994. It's 2023. So like, like, what the fuck? That's almost 20 fucking years that this dude has been able to sexually assault people and assault women by and large right and so it's like what the fuck and why do you why would you let that why do they allow it at columbia and why are you allowed to shuffle these fucking doctors around in other areas like what is that about can i interject real real quick before you answer that sure That that was a terrible impression of me that was a terrible cave impression that you did. <laughs> so you know. I didn't hit the 94 just right. No. Exactly. Okay. I'm sorry, Alyssa. Could you answer that? I mean, listen, there is no good answer to that question because it is completely fucked. It is completely unethical. This is totally unethical behavior. And this is why both as a, as a physician who cares about my patients and as a physician who cares about human beings in general and as an ethicist, I mean, it is completely unacceptable that this behavior is tolerated. But of course, why is it that these things happen? Why is it that all sorts of gender-based violence happens to women? Because mm-hmm. we have a society that continues to have to prioritize the comfort of men and the careers of men. And men, you know, we wouldn't want to ruin a good man's career. And mm-hmm. we love to question the veracity of everything that a woman says. Oh, are you sure? Are you sure that that happened to mm-hmm. you? Are you sure you're not just confused? Yeah. Are you confused? No, yeah. these people are not confused. They were assaulted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, until we, and this is part of, you know, one of the pieces that I had written um, a number of years back was saying, like, this is why we need gender equity in, in medicine. Like, if we continue to have organizations that are largely run by groups of individuals who are not personally affected by these issues in the work environment, it's very difficult for these systems to undergo any sort of transformational change, so long as the people in power really don't understand the lived experiences of many of the other people engaged in the system. I'm just like, has there been a response from columbia leadership as to why they would have allowed a doctor that has countless complaints under his belt for sexually assaulting his patients well conveniently they just recently had major changes in the leadership and those leaders did offer an apology but i'm i'm much more interested in seeing systematic change and Mm. i think from the the, the fact that Columbia has not notified as many of these patients as possible, has not taken the proactive step to say, you may have been harmed by someone and we care about you and we want you to be aware that this may have happened to you. To me, it's all bullshit. Like if you're not willing to take the, the proactive step to protect your patients, you're doing it wrong. 
Yeah, well, because they just they don't want to continue to get sued and settle and lose more money like they're which it's like, you know, if you had addressed this 20 years ago, you wouldn't have this boatload of shit on your table in front of you. Like, just fire the fucking doctor from the very beginning and prevent him from causing this kind of harm years on. And my my hope is, of course, that organizations are learning this the hard way. We are certainly seeing many more cases in the media where physicians are being held accountable, where victims are being believed, and their accusations are being appropriately investigated, are being appropriately escalated to law enforcement. And so one example is um, a case recently in Boston, which is part of how this uh, how this came to Kaveh's attention, is that... Um, a rheumatologist who was found to be doing vaginal exams, a number of patients had complained, and the university actually notified the patients. And that's how now there's actually a lawsuit that has over 100 patients in it hmm. filed against this physician. Let me take a quick break there. Sanam, do you know what a rheumatologist is? I was or does? just going to ask right now. Based They're on... not a vagina doctor, let me tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> so I was going to say, like, so what? does a rheumatologist do they do like uh, they're gonna be so pissed when they hear me reduce their whole careers down to this but they're like (laughs) you know if there's like bad arthritis (laughs) if there's connective tissue disorders that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. i I am trying i am trying to think really like like generously like is there a reason to do a vaginal yeah exam? like is there I mean, any circumstance in I, which I, like i honestly cannot think of one unless he was like uh there's some sort of weird prolapse of the i don't i cannot so, think of it what was his i you, i had you know talked, the reasoning i had i had reached out to a few people and it sounds like there are some rare reasons why someone might say we should check for this specific finding that would involve a pelvic exam but in reality um even if you, even if this is a, an exam that is indicated, right? Even if it's an exam that's going to improve, you know, you're going to diagnose something and it's going to improve the patient's condition. If physicians are incapable of getting appropriate consent, doing an exam in a way that does not make a patient more uncomfortable and are not able to really engage in that consent process and throughout the exam ensure that the patient is comfortable. Like we're doing it wrong. And so this gets to like really the entire spectrum from both assault all the way to, it can feel like assault for a patient if you're just really bad at doing this aspect of your job. I'm a seamstress. I have bad arthritis. I go in there to get my wrist and knuckles checked out and suddenly I'm getting a pelvic exam. Like that's a fucking brow razor. And like this, okay, this is the thing. I think- a lot of people might have an immediate response of, well, why the fuck would you let him give you a pelvic exam if you went in there to get your wrist checked out? Like one has nothing to do with the other. Why didn't you know any better? Why would you just go along with something like that? And I think um, this is a two-parter. This is, this is what it, it, part one is like, we are, trained to trust doctors implicitly like no matter what 
for whatever reason, if I'm in that room and this person that went to medical school, took um, the Hippocratic Oath, and then is telling me he needs to look at my vagina for whatever reason, I guess... I guess there's a reason for it. This is my health after all. I have to yeah. do whatever I have to do to make sure that, you know, I'm yeah. staying healthy. And like, so that's one where we're taught to just trust doctors, period. Number two is the the lasting issue that I hope we're correcting as women where like we are always afraid to offend someone especially if it's a man bruise a man's ego yeah. or god forbid where we made a mistake and oh oh you weren't sexually assaulting me oh, i'm so sorry i'm so embarrassed i didn't you know and like that's really what it comes down to where it's like you know these fucking dickheads are taking advantage of their profession and this opportunity and also of you know vulnerable women that that just we always fucking just try to be amenable amenable and go with the flow and we don't want to stir the pot and so it's like it's it's a horrible cauldron of mm. well sanam you're an iranian woman famously not known for suffering fools lightly particularly male fools so i yeah. i but yes, I understand your point. Honestly, I can't imagine anyone who would, well, I'm sure there will be people, but blaming the the, the female patient for this. Because, uh, victim oh, blaming I think they is would. like, oh, everyone know, loves I'm to sure. blame I'm, the lady. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> my first thought was like, what the fuck does a rheumatologist do? And like, does it have anything? Like, if I'm what? not going in to my GYN, why would I ever let anyone give me a pelvic exam? But that's the thing though i'm sure he had some spiel yeah about it like he had some Listen. some way of like well we convince convincing like, them like, like i don't is, know what the fuck yeah. anything has to do it, with medicine it, so i'm it, just gonna believe you and i'm sure he did it in such a way that made them yeah. feel like well he is a really thorough caring doctor mm -hmm. who is doing this thing my, my primary care doctor isn't doing a breast exam on me how great that this guy is doing that you know what well, i mean yeah. we're also just like not I don't think any I don't think any of us really feel like we're allowed to question our doctors in the moment, you know? Yeah. I just don't I don't I mean, think I've I've ever done it. Sonam, I think you're just you're hitting on the reasons why this is such a huge problem. So one, yes, we're taught to to trust physicians, right? They're smart, they did all this education, doctor knows best, blah, blah, blah. And you know, you I, I want to touch on your second point, which is that, you know you hope that we're going to move away from this idea of like being afraid to offend a man or being afraid, you know, to, to say something counter. But in reality, the reason that that is so deeply ingrained in us is because offending a man can get you murdered. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, this, these yeah. are real risks that, that we face out in the world. And obviously mm -hmm. women who are poor women of color, women who are in marginalized groups for whatever reason are even more, um, more at risk for that. And th to the point of how easy it is and how much, how convenient it is to blame the patient, because we love to blame the patient for all sorts of things, is that these, when we're, when we're talking about people who are doing unnecessary exams, 
They are assaulting their patients. These are predators. They are using their patients as a source of prey to assault them. They're incredibly manipulative. And um, when we look at, for example, it's, it's so disturbing and so sad to read some of the comments from some of Robert Haddon's patients because they describe the grooming behavior that mm. he utilized. And obviously talking about groomers, this is like very popular thing in the political press right now. The reality is that when you look through the behavior, the way that he spoke to his patients, mm. he created an environment in which saying no would be unreasonable. He mm. made them feel they were safe. They were comfortable. Of course, he was taking good care of them. And this is how it's so easy to have then this, especially when you have somebody who has this escalating behavior, right? They're mm -hmm. figuring out what words work. They're figuring out what they can do to make sure that this person is compliant while they are being assaulted. Mm -hmm. It's horrifying. Yeah. Ugh. To me, it just feels like the most important jobs that we have in this country we go to great lengths to protect the the worst of them, right? Like this is like qualified immunity for doctors. Uh, I don't understand why why is the priority to protect the doctor and not the patient? This is such a great question. And one of the things that um, the Atlanta Journal Constitution did an amazing in-depth uh, investigation called Still Forgiven. I highly recommend folks who are interested in this topic, check it out. And they actually came up with a report card for uh, medical boards. So those are the boards in each state that govern how it is that doctors are regulated, what we need to do in order to continue to practice medicine in a particular state. And one of the problems with medical boards Physicians are supposed to be able to self-regulate. We're supposed to have the privilege of being able to police each other's behavior because, of course, who else could understand the complexity of the work that we do besides another physician? And so one of the things that's incredibly important is that medical boards are not solely made up of physicians because physicians are inherently going to be more often are going to side with other physicians, are going to give physicians the benefit of the doubt. And I'm not saying that we should like, of course, we want to make sure that we have as, as accurate information as possible. We want to do good quality investigations. Medical boards are also funded in very different ways. They don't necessarily have the resources to do the kinds of investigations that they might need to do. The kinds of reporting that those medical boards are required to do can be incredibly varied and maybe incredibly useless. So you might even look up a physician that you have a reason, to, maybe you even know that they have an ongoing case, the medical board doesn't necessarily have that reported. And so each state can have some differences. All of those things are issues. And then also to your point, before things even get to a medical board, a hospital usually has to report somebody or a patient mm. has to report somebody. And so if there is a disincentivization from a hospital to report something to the medical board, they're going to avoid doing that because it's an immense amount of work. It's much easier to make the problem go away some other way. Like, is there a way for us to look up doctors and see if there have been complaints lodged against them? You can look up physicians in their medical boards and you can do Google searches. Um, but there's not some other repository of information that's necessarily going to be more accurate because a lot hmm. of this information is going to live inside of hospital organizations and inside of universities. 
is there like who are you supposed to report this shit to like obviously not the receptionist you know what i mean like yeah it's complicated and i think again this gets to the challenges that survivors face when they're trying to figure out what to do right so you can report it to the hospital you can report it to the joint commission you can report it to the state medical board this is like a full-time job by the way like this is a ton of work and for somebody who is now trying to respond to and may not even fully grasp what exactly has happened to them because it's so profoundly traumatic. Mm. Um, and if you go public, then there's a lot of risk that you open yourself up to. And I think there's a lot of folks who are like, they don't defamation. necessarily know where to find legal representation. You have to worry about things like defamation if the person comes back after you. So it's, mm. a, it, it's, it's a really complicated and it's really difficult. And it puts a lot of pressure on somebody who has prior to this assault, not necessarily ever had to think about what they would do if something like that happened to them. And is it safe to say, given the kinds of assaults that we're talking about, like largely it's women that are at risk of, of being harmed? Yeah. Yeah. Are, and, are there... and certainly, you know, people who are LGBTQ are more at risk as right. well. Yeah. Hmm. Are there any cases that you've seen of uh, female physicians perpetrating sexual assault? There are some. It's not, it's more of an anomaly. The vast majority of perpetrators, at least according to the information that's available, it's almost always, uh, you know, cisgendered straight men. Yep. Speaking of things that are awful, stay tuned for these uh, ads. We'll be right back. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Oh man, those were delightful ads. I uh, feel refreshed after that, and <laughs> I will definitely go buy a lotto ticket and or a mattress based on whatever you heard there. Um, <laughs> so, getting back to something I had asked, sort of in the the beginning, just in terms of like numbers, and 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 it's really hard. It sounds like to get a good grasp of them, but I will say, from what I was able to see. And from what I've heard, it is more than you think. Um, more than 3,100 doctors across the United States face public sexual abuse ac accusations between 1999 and 2015. This is according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And between 2016 and 2017, this same investigative team that looked into this found that more than 
450 doctors faced medical board or court proceedings surrounding some form of sexual misconduct. And, and I know people are trying to replace that terminology, sexual misconduct with sexual assault or something else, um, which makes sense. And from what I'm hearing, um, even even more than that, because, you know, it's hard to report these things. And, and uh, just like a lot of cases of sexual assault, it goes unreported. Um, but the ones that hit closest home to me is there was a recent case of a gastroenterologist who, uh, which I, I think we have to say alleged, I don't know if he's, if he's been tried in court or not, but he was at least accused of sexually abusing three of his patients at the New York Presbyterian Queens Hospital and raping three other women in his apartment. Um, what? I have so many questions about this case. So many questions about this case. Alyssa, do you know about this case? Can you help answer some of these? Can you tell us a little bit about what you know about this Dr. Zhi Allen Cheng? Yeah, yeah, I can. Um, you know, I what I know is from from the news reports, just as just as everybody else has access to. Um, so yes, uh, accused of abusing three patients as well as uh, raping women in, in his home. And then when he was um, arrested and when his his property was searched they found these uh like a treasure trove of videos uh purportedly documenting these alleged assaults and uh they also found a shocking array of anesthetic medications which is really what caught my attention in addition to the assault issue so he had fentanyl and ketamine he also had uh propofol wow. and sevaflurane which pretty much there's no reason to be using those outside of an operating room we don't and use i want to make that clear as gastroenterologists we do not do that sort of thing we we work with those medicines all the time and but we do ne i am never pushing propofol that is like insane that's what an anesthesiologist what is so that's like the Michael Jackson sleep medicine that puts you into that deep sleep for surgeries, like for deep mm -hmm. sedation. Which um, for those who don't remember, Michael Jackson was receiving propofol sedation from a cardiologist who also has no business giving propofol. Because as an anesthesiologist, we do this thing called monitoring vital signs to make sure you're alive when we're giving you these incredibly powerful and dangerous yeah. medications. Ooh, look who's so fancy. Is that vital I know. Signs. Look at her with her like oh. safety concerns. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. So, uh, okay. So, okay. I have a lot of questions about this. So it sounds like there was two separate categories of assault. He was assaulting like women in his apartment like that he was either dating or had found or whatever like non-patients lured back to his apartment yeah right um but then he was also assaulting patients and this is the part that again um confuses me like uh because i am as a gastroenterologist i am rarely alone with patients mm -hmm. you know um sometimes in a hospital room when they're hospitalized that's the one time because um, you go in there, you talk to them, there may or may not be someone there uh, when you do that. Uh, when was this occurring? When were these assaults occurring that he was doing? Um, I, I have not gone down the rabbit hole of this case to be able to tell you exactly what prosecutors are saying. Um, what I can say is that physicians who are assaulting patients, especially those that are anesthetized or they're in the hospital, um, you know, are creative. 
they're going to come up with ways to have access to patients that make it possible for them to to assault their patients. Um, and this is, you know, similar to what we see with patients who are assaulted in clinic spaces, even in clinics that they have a standard use of a chaperone. They always make sure somebody's there. People who want to assault their patients are very creative about making sure that they they're doing these exams at the end of the day when there's just a lot less staff around hmm. or they're um, the chaperone has left the room and they say, oh, I forgot to check something. Do you mind getting back on the table? So creating those opportunities in order to satisfy this very disturbing behavior. So I, I was trying to look into characteristics of physicians that do this. Um, and, um, you know, we touched on it, male, <laughs> age <laughs> greater than 39, which I don't think this particular gastroenterologist was. And consistently. He was a fellow. Uh, was <laughs> he a fellow? Oh, I think he was still a fellow. Actually, you know, he trained where I've got some of my training too. So that's mm. part of the reason this really bothered me. It means a lot of reasons it bothers me. <laughs> uh, it, so also the other, one of the other characteristics was consistently examining patients alone in non-academic settings, um, which it doesn't seem like necessarily is the case, you know, in, in many of these cases that we're hearing about. It sounds like it's both academic and non-academic. It's private. It's um, it's universities. It just seems to be really anywhere. <laughs> well, if you think about it, right. So, and I, and I said this earlier on, you know, we're really only getting a slice of the information in, in the data that we have. And so when you think about what's happening with, uh, for example, at universities, they have complex structures that make it potentially more possible to cover up these issues, move these folks from place to place. And it may be that um, other organizations are handling these things differently. So I think there's really important systemic factors that, you know, we just, we aren't sure exactly what the real incidence is. So we talked a little bit about things that you don't feel have been properly handled do you feel like there are places that have done it well? There are institutions. Do you feel like, for example, the rheumatologist at uh, Mass General, do you feel like they handle it well? Are there places that did do something that places could look to, to be like, all right, this is how you manage the situation should you be in it? Yeah, I think that example at Brigham is a good example of, you know, two people anonymously reported this clinician they did an investigation. They reached out to these this person's um, patients. And I think it's a real demonstration of how you can do this well. What is concerning is even though they really stepped this up as soon as they were aware of it, there's now over 100 people who are filing suit. So it means that this, it takes a lot. It, it We really need to listen to the people who have the moral courage to bring up these concerns that is like such an important flag that organizations need to be keyed into that if you're hearing about it once, it's probably happened a lot mm -hmm. more times before it's ever reported. So, and like who, so two patients reported anonymously. I think it was two staff members. Mm -hmm. Like and they then, saw something funny. Yeah. You <laughs> know, like if you see something, say something. And really there must have also been the psychological safety for those people to feel like, you know what, I can speak up about this and I'm not going to lose my job. 
right? Like there's so many toxic mm. cultural issues that are going to impact whether or not somebody who may witness behavior feels that they're actually in a position where they can escalate that and they believe that they will be listened to. Yeah. Well, the fact that they had to report it anonymously speaks volumes as to, you know, the culture. Like, I'm, I can't put my name on the line. There's going to be too much backlash. But And the reality is that the more often that we create opportunities for organizational courage, for organizations to demonstrate that they're going to do the right thing that the organization is going to uphold its purported values and that it's it's the stated values that they have are actually in alignment with the way that they try to behave you'll you'll have a better sense of what's going on and you'll be able to i hope catch these kinds of things earlier before there are so many survivors so you know i looked into things that we could tell uh you know listeners who are interested in like you know what can you do what can we do to to prevent this etc so I found on the um, the on Rain, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, I found some some things to like a checklist for patients to to remember. Feel free to weigh in on this or add. First, refuse to if they refuse to answer your questions or tell you to be quiet. That's obviously a major red flag. If the doctor is doing an exam on your private parts without gloves, I can't express how much of a red flag that is. Oh. Um, yeah, this is not like 1830. Oh. They should be wearing gloves. If they refuse to tell you what they're doing or why they're doing it, they need to know that they need to be able to explain that to you. They need to be able to get that consent. They need to be able to get that to express to you what they're doing. If they can't, that's on the doctor. If they decline to have another person in the room with you, especially if you ask, that's a that's a real problem. I don't know any doctor mm-hmm. that would do that off the top of my head, thankfully. If they insist that you undress parts of your body that they are not examining, um, they better have a, a really great reason for that, that they explain to you. Mm-hmm. And if they ask you questions about your sexual activity that make you uncomfortable, you don't have to answer those. Um, mm. Your doctor might ask you questions about sexual activity. Those might get personal. Um, for example, I, I may... as. As a gastroenterologist, I may ask somebody occasionally if they have penetrative uh, anal sex, because mm-hmm. that might correlate with something I see, or there might be some other risk factor there. But there should be a reason they're asking you those questions, and you should be able to ask them why. And if you don't feel comfortable a- answering it, you know, you should be able to say so. Um, what do you think about those? Anything else you would add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think those are all great examples. I think one of the things that's so important is really enhancing patients' agency. And if you're just in an exam and you feel uncomfortable for any reason, that is that is an important sense. Your body is telling you something that you need to do something about. And I think, unfortunately, as women, we are so often taught, suppress your discomfort to make the man in the room happy. Yeah. And the reality is that that follows us from every other encounter we have into our doctor's offices. Mm -hmm. And so if you feel uncomfortable, speak up. You have the authority to end that exam at any time. I want this exam to end now. I'm done. Um, And it is their responsibility to stop touching you. You Hmm. absolutely, and in fact, don't depend on somebody having um, 
you know, a chaperone, for example, in the room, like if you know that this is something that you're going to be sensitive to, especially we have so many patients who have experienced immense trauma in their childhoods, immense sexual trauma. Many children have been sexually assaulted. Many women have been sexually assaulted. Many of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters have been sexually assaulted. And so getting a sensitive medical exam is not the same for everybody. And so if you feel like, hey, I need to bring a friend or a, a partner or a loved one with me so that I can feel safe and comfortable, bring that person with you. And I totally agree with what you said, that if somebody says that you can't have that person with you during the exam, don't get that exam. Mm. Although I, I will say, like, I won't bring, I won't let people bring in their family or their friend to watch a procedure. If I'm doing like a colonoscopy on somebody, yeah. I'm not letting them bring and that happens sometimes. And I have to explain to them, I'm like, no, this is a medical procedure. I mean, things have to be working exactly as we need them to be. I can't have someone who doesn't know what they're doing in there. It's like, a, there's a lot of reasons why that, that can't happen. Mm. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that was really um, interesting to me, and this is sort of an adjacent issue is there are people who are not willing to get basic medical screening won't ever get a colonoscopy because they don't feel comfortable with any, you know, removing their clothing. They don't feel comfortable with the idea that anybody would see the private parts of their body. And I think that there can be a tendency in medicine to dismiss those people's concern and say, oh, it's weird that they won't come get medical care. But I think the, the greater degree that as clinicians, we recognize that a, a trauma-informed care approach to all of our patients is going to be a better outcome. We, we need to build trust and earn trust from our patients rather than just accept it. And obviously, when we're talking about sexual assault, those are not the clinicians who are going to be like improving their practice. But mm. for the rest of us, recognizing what a huge issue this is, um, I think can be really valuable. What do you say about male physicians who see patients in outpatient settings all the time and will do basic exams like, you know, listen to heart, lungs, or do an abdominal exam, you know, without, uh, I mean, because it, sometimes it's not feasible to always have a chaperone in every clinic room for everything. What about those parts of exams that are not explicitly um, close to sexual, like listening to the heart or the lungs or an abdominal exam? What What advice do you have for those doctors? Well, I think... Well, I'm going to I'm going to start actually with patients. If you are worried that you'll feel uncomfortable during any sort of a medical exam, if it's possible for you to bring somebody with you, bring somebody with you. Make sure that you're comfortable, make sure that you have what you need to feel safe in an environment to the greatest degree that you can. For clinicians that are providing care, you know, I have learned so much from taking care of children that has made me better at taking care of adults. And so for example, I ask kids before I touch them, I say, is it okay if I listen to your heart? Is it okay if I listen to your lungs? And if they say, no, I don't do it. I don't yeah. say, oh, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I think that if you are engaged in that active practice and you make it your habit to actually ask permission before you touch someone and to only touch them in exactly the way that you said you were going to, that mm. is how we ensure that we have boundaries, that we ensure that we're treating our patients with dignity and respect. And that we are not assuming that we have authority or power over somebody's body that they didn't explicitly give us. Um, and the same thing goes in terms of, you know, if you're having an abdominal exam, 
only your abdomen should be exposed. There is no reason for the rest of your body to be exposed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually am perfectly fine with other people coming in for the visit, like family members. I will occasionally ask them to step out if there's a question that I want to ask. Like this happens a lot. If it's a young person and their parents are there, I will ask the parents to step out. And sometimes the eyeball me kind of funny. I'm like, I'm going to ask some questions that I want to hear the answer to without you guys here. Of course. And again, for that small part of the interview, and again, it's all the the entire purpose of doing that, right, is to respect the patient's agency, to respect what the patient wants to disclose to you, but may not want Mm -hmm. to disclose to other people in their, in their environment. And of course, that's not something that's just limited to, you know, young adults or to teenagers that can apply to any of our patients. And Mm -hmm. so again, for each of those steps, whatever we can do again, to like demonstrate and prove that we are trustworthy that is part of what makes a better relationship with our patients. And, and listen, just like um, the discourse in general around sexual assault and around rape, where there's, there's frankly a lot of men who are like, well, but I'm not a rapist, so there's, that's not my problem. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that we can't have issues that are this pervasive, that are this harmful, and re- not realize this is actually everyone's responsibility. Mm-hmm. Every physician should be worried about this issue. Every nurse should be worried about this issue because it is our job to make sure that we protect patients, we ensure our patients are safe, and to really respect their dignity as as fellow human beings. Yeah, well, that's a good place, I think, for us to close this out on. There's a lot more to talk about, but I've kept you guys long enough. I mean, Hmm. when I solicited questions and topic information, um, I... One of the things that came up that I'm going to have to make a whole episode about that's separate is sexual harassment in medical training of medical trainees, which is a whole oh, other topic um, to, to discuss. Um, but I, I appreciate you guys both being on. Um, let's let's get some plugs in. Sonam, uh, yeah, what do you want to plug? Oh, God. Um, I didn't think you this check, through. You, you check Twitter like twice a year so i don't think it's that yeah like uh what sure. about the podcast tell us about this this up your upcoming episode uh where people can find it yeah so uh check out sports explains the world uh new podcast out from wondery uh a lot of really great human stories related to sporting things um my episode uh the weight rage against the regime is coming out TBA, uh, I imagine I will, in the next couple months. <laughs> I will support fully when it is out, and I want to listen to it. I can't wait, so make Thanks. sure you let me know. Um, Alyssa, what about yourself? Where, what would you like to, to plug here? Uh, where can people find you? And listen, I'm on all the socials. I like mm-hmm. to make friends. I'm there under uh, Burgart Bioethics for uh, Alyssa Burgart. And I have a newsletter called Poppies and Propofol, where I talk about anesthesia, ethics, whatever whatever issue is is interesting to me that week mm. yeah very good and uh, thank you to nadine for help with production thank you for guys for for listening and supporting the show uh if you haven't already rate and review us at itunes and uh you know tell all your friends because that's what cool people do thank you guys so much for coming on appreciate it thanks for having us yeah thank you so much for talking about this i know it's a, a tough topic it was really nice yeah, to meet I you mean, it can't all be fart jokes here so (laughs) thank you guys so much this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment 
Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.